place it comfortably. The same of what I want to talk about tonight is in some ways um, a, little, a little bit different from other Dharma talks. A lot of the talks that Zen teachers give um, are often sent around the theme of um, the death of egocentricity. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing that can be misunderstood in that is that <clears throat> while we're trying to dissolve that egocentristic, egocentric structure, what we fall into is um, actually more individuation. Doesn't mean we just follow. We fall into being some kind of grey, indescribable kind of um, experience. We fall into more uniqueness, and we fall into being more ourselves as we are. And when you look at the social context um, in which um, uh, Chan in China arose, and Zen in Japan, Chinese culture back in those days, as I understand it which is very much a Confucian structure, was full of all these social rules about how you should relate to that person and respect that person's status and that person's status. And, um, and it, it was, actually it creates a lot of social anxiety for people having to follow all these rules. I think Japanese culture is even worse. You know? And I know it a little bit more intimately from, from being there, but you had to know whether it about that deep or that deep or that deep for someone and people would agonise over the right kind of present to give another person, you know, and it creates all of these social constructions create all of these kind of like a prison, like a that people live within. And if you imagine growing up in a culture like that, you could imagine that it had a alternative culture release valve where people could get beyond all of that. You know. So therefore, Taoism became the kind of polar opposite to Confucianism. And Zen was a way of escaping from that social prison also within Japanese culture. We just get outside the conceptual frameworks and the status and the high and low and the right and the wrong. So you can just be free to be an individual. So within those cultures in which our tradition originated, a lot of it was to help the person come back to their individuality again. However, coming back to individuality is not, in, in a Zen sense, is not perhaps the same as the way seek, people seek individuality in our culture, in our Western culture. And people in our culture often try to, to seek it by um, looking different in appearance, you know, like wearing rings in different part of their body or tattoos or pink hair or green hair, you know, or unconventional clothing or, or doing things in an unconventional way. And in, I don't have an argument with that if people wish to do that. But <clears throat> it's not the kind of individuation we're actually looking at from a Zen perspective. It's easy to do that. <coughs> mm -hmm. But what happens through the practice of doing sitting meditation, you know, month after month and year after year, is that you just pare away a lot of conditioning so that you just become naturally who you are. It's an uncovering process. And so you become more completely who Jeff is or who Peter is or who Joe is. You know, it's just a um, breaking down of the conditioning. 
And so it's that kind of individuation that takes place. If you were to give it a definition of what the ego is, in contrast to uniqueness or individuality, the ego is simply this grasping aversion dynamic that goes on inside of us. And, and in Buddhist terms, visually, it kind of creates a vicious cycle. And the vicious cycle creates this kind of defensive, rigid, psychophysical tension. But that's all it is. Right? Our task is to see through that and dissolve it. But if we, if we do that, we, we become more fully ourselves in some way. <clears throat> There's an interesting quote um, from Carl Jung, the psychiatrist and psychotherapist, which is very Zen-like. He said, It is not I who creates myself, rather I happen to myself. Mm -hmm. Resonate in some way? Mm -hmm. And also came across an interesting story, which was written, I think, by the Jungian therapist, and uh, which is relevant to this. And it's called The Missing Piece. And in the story, there is a circle. And the circle believes it has a missing piece, so it goes in search of its missing piece. And so it rolls through the forest and it sees butterflies and trees and so on, and it looks for things, so it finds <coughs> things to make up the missing piece, like a, a stone, you know, or a leaf or whatever, and it can't find it, it can't find the, the perfect missing piece. And so it keeps on searching, and, it's, and it rolls through the, through the forest in this kind of joyous way, really, because it says, oh, I'm looking for my missing piece, I'm looking for my missing piece. Heidi D, here I go, looking for my missing piece. Mm -hmm. And then it finds its missing piece, and then um, it, it holds on to the, to the perfect missing piece so tightly that it breaks it. So it has to go on and look for another perfect missing piece. And then it finds another perfect missing piece that fills it in completely, but it has to hold it in its teeth. And it can no longer go skipping through the forest going, oh, I'm looking for my missing piece, I'm looking for my missing piece. Hi-de-ho, here I go looking for my missing piece. So it has to drop the perfect thing that was missing. And then it just goes on its way singing. Mm -hmm. See, we're, we're often going through life looking for something in ourselves that we think is missing, that we've got to fill up the emptiness with. Mm. Or we're looking for the perfect partner or whatever that's going to complete us. But as soon as we get what it is that we think might be perfect, it's no longer satisfying anymore. It's like it's still a holding on to something, you know. And so we can hold on to emptiness, which is a circle, or you can hold on to the fullness, which is the perfect piece, but it's neither of those. Uh -huh. And so the circle is liberated when it just keeps on merrily going on its way, singing its song through its life. Mm -hmm. Go back to what Jung said. It is not I who creates myself, rather I happen to myself. When the circle was no longer preoccupied with finding a missing piece and holding on to it, it was free to just happen to itself. It's kind of like koan-like, really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And that's what happens to us. You know, those really great lines from Haku and Zenji's Song of Sarsim, um, Is there anything missing now? Mm -hmm. This very place is the lotus land, this very body, the Buddha. 
it's those words are directing us back is to how we are right now is is perfectly fine. And yet human beings think there's something missing and off we go on our searches <coughs> anxious and looking for something that's going to complete us when we're complete already. And that's the nature of realisation over and over again is that um, the way we are right now is complete. And when you when you realise that and you become more complete in yourself, that, that is your individuation. But it's very different from conventional views of individuation. That inner individuation doesn't, doesn't require um, having to stand out from the crowd. In fact, there's a saying in Zen, uh, to be like a white bird in the snow, just to be inconspicuous. You don't have to do all those outward, outward things to be unique. You are unique. You know it from the inside. But where it actually, where that individuation and that that inner sense of uniqueness plays itself out in your life is that you know before you started Zen practice, you might have been involved with friends who who gossiped, and then you find I actually don't want to do gossiping anymore. That's individuation. Or you may be in a group of people who make racist jokes or sexist jokes and you kind of go, I don't really want to do that anymore. That, that's individuation. That's individuation in the true inner sense of the world rather than trying to just cling to the making of the self you know, and being preoccupied with an outward expression of it.